up uh, to read God's word for us. You can find it on page 46 of your Bibles. Uh, if you're using a pew Bible, that's in front of the chair in, uh, in front of you. Or if you have your own Bibles, we're going to be looking at Exodus 3. And uh, starting actually in chapter 2, verse 23, and ending uh, 3, verse 12. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad place, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold... The cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Noel. Man, she hit those nations a blink of an eye. That was great. Uh, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you for this body. We thank you, Lord, that we do not uh, live on our own, but you have given us uh, this body of Christ to be able to live together. And so as we hear your word and you instruct us, Lord, help us to do this together. For we know that um, left to our own vices, left alone, Lord, we will fail. But with a mighty God and with your people, Lord, we know that we could live faithfully as you have called us to do. So we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, last night, I had the opportunity uh, to be gifted two tickets to Les Mis. And for my wife and I, it's our favorite musical, hands down. There's no greater story no greater music, and if you're not familiar and you've never seen the musical, uh, maybe you've seen the Hollywood uh, adaptation of it with Anne Hathaway and Russell Crowe and Hugh Jackman. Last night I called him Jack Human, but <laughs> the people next to us understood what I meant. Um, but what struck me last night as we watched this was the character, the main character, Jean Valjean. You see, he was caught stealing bread, and was served a nine-year sentence in prison as a slave. And finally, as this musical and as a story, the novel begins, he is finally let set free on parole. But he's given this yellow passport, 
And this yellow passport identifies himself as a criminal, as an outcast, and as a thief. And no matter where he goes, that is his identity, right? He tries to buy bread and tries to buy food. They upcharge him because he carries this yellow ticket. When he tries to go find some lodging to sleep and lay his head, he has nowhere to go because they won't let him in because he's an outcast. He is a criminal. But his life changes when? When he encounters this man, this bishop. This bishop, though he has this yellow ticket and he is ostracized, As this criminal and outcast, this bishop lets him in, gives him a seat at the table to eat, and gives him a bed to sleep in. But as Jean Valjean can only do, he sees the silverware, right? And he knows that it's worth so much money. And in the middle of the night or early in the morning, he puts it into his sack and he tries to run away knowing that he can make so much money off of this silverware. The police catch him, this antagonist, Javert. And as he catches him, he knows that this is the end of him. He will either be put back in prison or be put to death. But this bishop comes. And in this moment where he knows that his life is over, this bishop comes and says, no, I gave him that silverware. And actually, moreover, you forgot to take the candelabras with you, the most, even more expensive than the silverware. And Jean Valjean's encounter with this bishop forever changes his life. This man who is known as an outcast, as a criminal, that's the identity that he carried. Now he becomes this man throughout this novel and throughout the musical, a man who is forever changed. He represents the ideal in humanity, and he grows in his moral compass. He becomes the mayor of this city. He becomes this rich, influential man, and he helps the needy. He takes on this father figure for this young girl, Cosette, who's lost his mother. And we see this man's life change, and in this song that he sings... After he encounters this bishop, he says this, Yet why did I allow that man to touch my soul and teach me love? He treated me like any other. He gave me his trust. He called me brother. My life he claims for God above. Can such things be? For I had come to hate the world, this world that always hated me. This encounter changes his life. It's a beautiful story. And here in this this passage that we read, Moses' life is changed for the better as well. This encounter with God himself changes him forever. And here in this story, as we've gone through this Advent series, we've looked at this Christophany 14 times. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself, comes down to earth. And it's always as the angel of God, not a angel or an angel, but the angel. And it only comes for a moment. And as quickly as Jesus appears, he disappears. But the important thing that we see in this Christophanies 14 times in the Old Testament, that Jesus appears to God's people, 
is that he wants to communicate something. He wants to communicate why he will come as we look and anticipate Christmas morning. And he wants to show and, and communicate to God's people what is temporary now, this glimpse of hope that we're looking at, will come to full fruition when Jesus becomes fully man. Not just temporarily, but he carries that bodily form now and forever. And what does God desire to teach us here as he shows up as the angel of the Lord? What does he long to communicate to us and to the Israelites and to Moses? Three things that we're going to look at. God meets us in our waiting. God meets us in our doubts and fears. And lastly, God meets us in our captivity. First, God meets us in our waiting. You have to go back to the beginning of the story of Moses to truly understand the gravity of God meeting Moses in his waiting. You see, Moses was born in a time when Pharaoh wanted to kill and execute every single male that is born. Why? Because the Israelites were growing like crazy. They were overtaking the Egyptians. So Pharaoh saw this as a threat. And so he made this edict and said that every male that is born must be killed, but any daughter can be saved. And so as Moses is born, the mother keeps him for a little while, but then finally realizes that she cannot keep him and makes this little boat out of reed and places Moses in this basket and sends him off into the river. And to make a long story short, Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses, this little infant, and she keeps him as his own. She adopts Moses into the family of Pharaoh. So he grows up with power. He grows up with privilege. He grows up with the best food. He grows up in the most wealthiest family possible. But here's the thing with Moses. As you begin to read his story, his heart burns and yearns for justice. That is what captivates his life and his soul. Anytime he sees injustice or oppression, he feels like he needs to take action, and he does. Three times. First, he sees an Egyptian beating up on an Israelite. And so he steps in to this injustice and kills this Egyptian. Kills him with his hands and buries him so that no one would know. Well, the next day, second time, Moses finds his own two Israelite brothers fighting in a quarrel. Something's going on, and he feels like he has to go. The burden is upon him to make it right. He steps in, tries to make it right, but what do these Israelites tell him? What, you're going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? And immediately Moses knows that everybody knows that he's a murderer. And Pharaoh finds out, and he wants to kill Moses as well. And so what does Moses do? He's left with the only choice, and to run. He runs away far away to this country of Midian. And in Midian, while he's far away in a foreign land, as, a, as this runaway, um, what do you call those people? Fugitive. As a runaway fugitive, he sees these seven women at a, at a well, trying to collect water. And these shepherd men, 
come in and harass these women the third time now. Moses sees the injustice and the oppression, and he acts. He saves these women, and he ends up actually marrying one of these women. And who is it? It's, this, it's the daughter of the priest of Midian. And it's, this, and it's in this place we read where Noel read for us in verse 1. What is Moses doing? Here he's a man of justice, wanting to take action against oppression. And what do we read about Moses? Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, which is actually Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. How far he has fallen. He had lost all his power. He lost his privilege. And here he was just as a shepherd. Not of his own flock, but a borrowed flock of his father-in-law. And he takes him to this far away from Midian even to find food for the flock, for his sheep. Now what you have to understand is it has been 40 years, 40 years since Moses fled from Egypt. 40 long years. And he wasn't a young lad when he left Egypt either. He was 40 years old when he fled Egypt. 40 plus 40. He's an 80-year-old man who's just tending sheep. And it's in this moment that God meets Moses in his waiting. Let me ask you a question. For a lot of us here, aren't we all waiting in some sense, like Moses? Some of us here in this room, we never thought we would just be at stay-at-home moms or dads. And here we're just mundanely, ordinarily, trying to take care of our kids, clean the house, make food, go to school activities, shoot off 100 emails to your school and to your PTA, whatever it is. And you never thought that you'd be here in this moment tending sheep. For others, your dream was to be a, med school, to be a doctor, to be a CEO, to have this impact and influence in wherever you might be. But you're just working a nine-to-five job, pushing paper, reporting to ten bosses above you. And you never thought that you'd be here tending sheep. Some others of you are here in this St. Louis city, and you're like, why are we here? And you complain every day about how I wish I, wish I was back in the coast or up in Chicago. And like, why am I still here on the side of Mount Horeb? Right? We are in this place of waiting. Some of us, I know, have desired to be pastors. And yet you're still here after graduation. Wondering, why am I still here? Just working a normal job. When all my other graduates have gone off and pastored these churches. You're waiting. And it's not just waiting. You're waiting in this place where you never thought you would actually be. And this is where Moses is. But he's being faithful. Actually, Exodus later on says he's content. He's content. And it doesn't make it easy, but he's doing it. 
And it's not like Moses goes to the side of the mountain and goes, I'm going to meet God now. Throughout scripture, we see this. Isaiah, when he meets God, it's not like Isaiah wakes up and goes, I'm going to meet God now. But it's in his normal, mundane, ordinary life of going to worship God, God encounters Isaiah. Paul's the same way. Paul is on the road to Damascus to kill and slaughter Christians. He doesn't wake up thinking what, what happened. But in that moment, God meets people in their ordinary, mundane work. What does that look like for you and I to be faithful in the mundane, ordinary, what you don't expect, what you don't want, but God has placed you in that place? And what does it look like for us to be faithful? As we wash dishes, we take care of kids, as we wait for that spouse that you long for, for the children that you want, what does that look like for you to be faithful? Because here, Moses, in his waiting, God meets him. God is the one who comes and intervenes. What does that look like for you and for me? Secondly, God doesn't just meet us in our waiting. But he also meets us in our doubts and fears. Think about this. Moses begins his response to God in Christ and says, here I am. But he ends by saying, who am I? He goes, here I am. But he ends this dialogue with, oh, who am I? How does he get there? Well, Moses, as we look at this story, what happens is that Moses sees this fire in a bush, right? Now, what captures his attention is not just that it's a fire in a bush, but he's all alone with his sheep. And there is a fire. So something's problematic with that. Like, how in the world is there a fire when there's no one except for me and my sheep? There's no way my sheep started this fire. <laughs> Secondly, he notices that this fire is not consuming the bush. What I mean by that is, what do you need for fire to grow and to continue to maintain itself? It needs to consume whatever that is burning, right? And so when you look at this, the leaves aren't being burned. The twigs aren't being burned. The branch is not being burned. This fire is completely self-sufficient. And Moses knows. Why? There's no smoke. There's no smoke coming out of it. You know the solo stove? Some of you, that bonfire creates no smoke. This is better than the solo stove. Like you don't need wood in this solo stove. It is self-sufficient fire, and Moses notices it, and he goes up to it, not knowing it's God. And as soon as he gets closer, God says, Moses, Moses. And immediately he describes and reveals who he is, and Moses is afraid. But Moses, or God, does not just reveal who he is. He gives him a mission. And what is that mission? It's to go back to Egypt and to set my people free from the hands of Pharaoh. And then he says, who am I? We all have doubts. We all have fears. Moses here does not believe that he can do it. He's like, are you crazy? I am a fugitive. They know what I have done. 
And you're calling me to go back to the place I just ran away from 40 years ago? And he says, I don't believe I can do that. But not only that, we didn't read it, but later on, Moses, Moses asked, well, how am I supposed to do it? Like, what do you want me to tell them? And what God says is, tell them I am who I am sent you. And what Moses in asking that is saying is like, I don't believe I can do it. But you know what? Not only that, my own people, the Israelites, won't believe that I can do it. Because they know who I am. I am a criminal. I am a thief. This is my identity. And how in the world will they believe me? You see, he has all these doubts and fears. And all of us can, can relate to whatever you are going through in your life. The circumstances that come your way. We have doubts. We have fears. You do not believe in yourself. You don't believe you have the fortitude. You know the way people view yourself, view you and the way you view yourself. And there's so many fears and doubts that we carry. But Moses is given two th- words of encouragement. And the first is this, and it's for us as well. Moses, or God calls him by name twice, right? He says, Moses, Moses. Like parents might say, Stephen, Stephen, but that's because they're not paying attention to us, right? Or they're not responding. But here, it's not because of that. As Tim Keller notes, he says, the doubling of a name means emotional intensity, magnitude of relationship. It always means I want to have a relationship with you. It always means love. It always means intensity. See, this is the God that we worship. He absolutely loves us. He wants to have relationship with us. It is coming to know God as a person, and that happens when he meets us and calls us by name twice. It is always his initiative, always his invitation by which we come up to him and meet him. And so in our doubts and fears, Know that he calls you by name. There's another Christophany that we, we won't touch on during this Advent series. But Hagar has his son, her son Ishmael. And they're out in the desert and they know that they're far away from water and they're going to die. They know they're going to die. So Hagar leaves Ishmael by himself and she goes away sobbing knowing that the, their life is about to be over. And Christ... As the angel of the Lord comes down and says, what is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. We miss the significance of this address. You know why? Out of the thousands and thousands of documents of near ancient East material and writings, there's no deity, no deity across the ancient Near East that ever referred and called a woman by name. But here, the God, Yahweh, the God that we worship, it is the only place that God himself calls a woman by name. And he calls you by name. And in your doubts and fears, he addresses you with love and compassion. But the second thing that God does is he assures Moses, what? I will be with you, right? In verse 12. Uh, Where are we? In verse 12, I will be with you. 
and this shall be a sign for you. I will be with you. Isn't that the whole point of why Christ comes into this world? Emmanuel, I will be with you. He is with us in our doubts. He is with us in our fears. When I became the pastor of Crossroads at that time nine years ago or almost ten years ago, I had so many doubts and fears. Because I was just a college intern, a seminarian. And everyone in the church saw me as just this little baby. Oh, how cute. You're taking care of the college students. You're in seminary. Oh, you got married. You have no kids. And oh, yeah, look at you, right? But then now, like, I've become the pastor of this church that saw me as a little baby and as a kid. And there's so many doubts and fears of, like, how am I going to do it? Like, they, I have no, res- not that I didn't have the respect, but that's just the internal fears and doubts I have. How am I going to gain the respect? I'm just seen as a little kid. How do I reach to the 50 and 60-year-olds when I'm only 30? But Greg Hewlett was a man who was attending our church. He had stage four cancer, and we would meet every week, and I thought I was ministering to him. But he would always remind me, and he didn't even know the doubts and fears I had. But he would always say, Dan, you were ordained. Do you know what that ordination means to you? It means that God has called you, and you are his. And he will be with you. So as you go through the ministry from now to whenever it is with Crossroads, Know that you can go in confidence. And those words have always stuck out to me. And those words are for every single one of us that God is with us and he calls us by name. The third thing that we see, not only God meets us in our waiting and in our doubts and fears, but lastly, God meets us in our captivity. Up to this point, we looked at Moses and how God met Moses in his waiting, in his doubts and his fears. But here's the thing. Listen. But the the point of this story is not to identify with Moses. We are not Moses in this story. Yes, we can learn from Moses and we can identify with we can identify with his fears and his doubts and his waiting. But we are called here to identify with the Israelites who have been in captivity as slaves for 400 years. Do you see that? As much as God meets Moses in the waiting and in his doubts, I would say to you that God meets the Israelites in their waiting and in their doubts and fears, right? Moses waited 40 years. The Israelites were waiting 400 years. Think about the doubts and fears that the Israelites had. Is God going to be true to his promise? Who is this God that some of these, our forefathers and our grandparents are telling me about? Like, we've been in captivity as slaves, dying. Like, how can it be true that God's promise to Abraham that there's going to be, that we're going to be this great nation is ever going to happen? And the story, as God himself, Christ, comes and reveals himself to Moses, that is actually for Moses to tell the people of God. And it's our story as well. And here, what we see in their waiting and in their doubt, what do we see in how God responds? We didn't read it, but look at verse 24 in chapter 2. God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. 
God saw the people of Israel and God knew. You see, God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. God God heard their groaning. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters in verse 7. Verse 9, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. And in verse 6 as well, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. You see, his promises have not ended. This is not plan B. This is still plan A. You know how I know? It's right under our noses. What did God promise Abraham? You will have children that outnumber the stars in the sky. What has happened over 400 years? The Israelites have grown over 2 million people. God has been faithful, and now he is ready to set his people free. And this word, not only does God hear, remember, God saw, God knew. But what does God do? In verse 8, look at this. He says, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. You see, we see the significant and temporary moment of this Christophany appear to Moses. Why? To deliver his people from captivity, to fulfill the promise that God has always kept with his people all the way back with Abraham. You see, it's absolutely important for us to see the imagery of God coming down, to stoop down, to come down. Why? Out of his love for his people to deliver them. But it's more than that, because what we see is this parallel, this imagery of Exodus 3.8 that we just read, and the work of Jesus Christ himself. Because what does Jesus do? The epitome of God's condescension coming down in his love for us is the incarnation of the eternal Son of God. Jesus becomes flesh, becomes man. The God-Son stooped down and became man for you and for me. Why? To deliver his people out of sin and bondage and captivity. He did it because of his love for his people and because his promises will never fall to the ground. He did it because he is the God who redeems his people from the beginning to set us free from bondage and slavery and in sin. And that's what Advent is, isn't it? Advent is God coming down, Emmanuel, to be with us. And so Jesus shows up to Moses to show us a glimpse of what he's going to do forever. To become man God-man, to take on flesh for eternity and to be with his people, not just to be with us, but to set us free from slavery, of sin, of our habitual addictions, of the conflicts with people and marriage issues, and problems that we have, conflicts that we have with our children, the unrest at work, all these unmet desires, God comes down to save his people and to give us hope. Let me quote as I end here 
one theologian said this, what Moses' life-changing encounter teaches us is that we serve a God who will go to extreme lengths to redeem the lost. He does not cast aside the people because they are unworthy or incapable. Instead, he condescends to meet with them, change them, and free them from bondage and captivity. The only appropriate response to such glorious grace is, who am I? Who am I to deserve it? Who am I? We are heard, we are remembered, we are seen, and we are known. And he will meet you in your waiting. He will meet you in your doubts and your fears. He will meet you in your captivity. Let's pray to God. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. And we thank you for Jesus, for the one who showed up, not just temporarily, but for eternity, to be with us, to save us from sin, to save us from bondage, to give us hope, to give us peace. So, Lord, I pray that wherever we are, maybe it's in the waiting, maybe it's in our doubts and fears, maybe it's with certain habits or addictions or broken relationships or unmet desires, Lord, I pray that you would give us and set us free so that we might be able to experience the freedom that you always intended. Lord, I pray that you would do that even as we come to the table this morning, that this would be a glimpse of what is to come with Christ when he comes back. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue in our worship, we have the opportunity to confess our faith together. This is what unites us. This is what makes us uh, the body of Christ. And so, Restoration, what is it that you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.